Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a surgeon explains what's important to know about inflammatory bowel disease. We have this inflammatory process and it's probably a, a mixture of genetic components um, as well as environmental factors and a lot of that is still uh, being evaluated. An educator tells how pre-exposure prophylaxis is reducing the spread of HIV. It's over 99% effective at preventing HIV, so it's a great solution for anyone who's worried about contracting HIV. And a neurologist goes over how surgery and neurostimulators can improve the lives of adults with epilepsy. In certain patients, um, seizure freedom can be achieved with, uh, with epilepsy surgery. Uh, depends on uh, the area of the brain that is causing the seizures. All that and a visit from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll learn how to prevent the spread of the virus that causes AIDS. Then, a neurologist discusses surgery and neurostimulators for adults with epilepsy. But first, a surgeon goes over what's important to know about inflammatory bowel disease. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, we're discussing inflammatory bowel disease with Dr. Joseph Valentino, who's an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate. He takes care of adults with inflammatory bowel disease. Thank you for your time, Dr. Valentino. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Now, before we talk about treatments, um, I'd like to get an understanding about what inflammatory bowel disease is. Is it an autoimmune disease? So it certainly uh, has an immune com a component. It, uh, the immune system definitely uh, plays a role. I'm not sure that's exactly the term that I would use, but it is a significant uh, uh, part of uh, dealing with inflammatory bowel disease. So we have this inflammatory process, and it's probably a, a mixture of genetic components um, as well as environmental factors, and a lot of that is still uh, uh, being evaluated and trying to figure out exactly uh, what parts um, uh, seem to uh, cause uh, this disease process. So we might not understand entirely where the inflammation comes from. Right, and I think we're gaining uh, information, um, you know, certainly as, as time goes on, I think if we uh, had all of the exact details, we'd have uh, you know, even better treatments than we do. But I, I think as our knowledge expands, it does uh, help us to continue to manage this disease uh, more effectively. Is it a disease that people are born with or do you see it developing later in life? Um, so the timing of the disease, uh, uh, many people are affected at a younger age. There does seem to be another peak uh, later in life. So, um, being a certain age does not necessarily exclude you from the possibility of being diagnosed with inflammatory uh, bowel disease. Um, as I, I mentioned, there does seem to be at least a, gene a genetic predisposition. We do see um, a, uh, a kind of a familial pattern, at least in certain cases. And what I mean by that is, is some people who share common genetic uh, background um, may have an increased likelihood of, of uh, having disease. And there are certain uh, genetic abnormalities, or at least uh, uh, genetic traits that may increase the chance that that, that disease would happen. And a lot of that seems to, um, you know, if, if you think of it, maybe even as genetics might um, impact the, the likelihood that an environmental trigger would end up causing your process, that might be uh, a way to look at it. Is inflammatory bowel disease a dangerous condition? Are there... Um complications that go with it? It definitely can have a big impact on somebody's uh, quality of life and and even potential, uh, potentially quality or quantity rather uh, of life. So, so yes, there are definitely complications that can take place uh, related to inflammatory bowel disease. Um, you know, that the inflammation that can happen within the GI tract can cause bleeding uh, in, uh, 
stricturing perforations or something has a hole in it, and that can obviously have infectious complications. It can make somebody pretty sick um, and then even predisposed to cancer. So um, most definitely, uh, if, if you are diagnosed with it or if there's a concern for it, carrying through uh, with that workup um, and making sure you're established with all the right physicians ends up being uh, very important um, to both try to limit the chances of something like that happening and also if we're unfortunate enough to be in a situation where we're dealing with some of these complications, make sure that you have the right physicians on board to help out. Can you talk about the difference between ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease? Are those two different things? So they fall under the umbrella of inflammatory bowel disease. Ulcerative colitis uh, should be confined to the, uh, the colon. It's a more continuous disease uh, starting uh, down at the anal canal and carrying back for uh, a variable distance. Uh, and it is affecting that mucosal surface, that, that inner lining. Um, uh, the, the Crohn's disease is, uh, uh, can affect anywhere from the mouth to the anus. So it, it, it has a broader range, uh, in, in which, uh, it can show up. It's a, a full thickness, uh, disease. Um, and when I was mentioning some of those things, uh, certainly perforation and, and all that can happen in, in either diagnosis, but, uh, but some of these full thickness, uh, you know, phenomenon, some of this penetrating disease that we'll see with Crohn's. Uh, with the fistulas and abscesses and those sorts of things may may be um, more prevalent in that particular disease process. So, um, trying to distinguish those two can sometimes be a challenge, at least when they're confined to the colon. So, some people even fall into a category of indeterminate colitis, where we may think that it's one diagnosis versus the other, um, but sometimes uh, even if we think it's ulcerative colitis, uh, later on, um, you know, other manifestations may show up and will, uh, that will be indicative of Crohn's disease. So, how would a patient come to learn that they have an inflammatory bowel disease? What are some of the symptoms that they may notice? Uh, so, uh, you know, the GI tract is a significant component, although not necessarily the only uh, area in which these, these diseases can uh, show up, but it could be abdominal pain, bleeding, uh, you know, per rectum, a change in bowel habits. Um, so basically these kind of symptoms that will trigger us to start doing some sort of a workup. And as we do that, um, you know, kind of work our way down all the potential causes. That's when we, uh, you know, may identify the presence of this, uh, you know, this inflammation or uh, inflammatory bowel disease. Are there specific tests to be done that would give you a diagnosis to be sure? Is there like a blood test? So there ends up being a combination of testing, um, and that can include endoscopy, imaging, uh, laboratory evaluation uh, that will uh, sort of uh, steer us towards the diagnosis. Um, so, you know, as part of that workup, it may include upper and lower endoscopy. So a lot of people are familiar with colonoscopies, but basically looking at the GI tract with the camera, uh, can involve in, abdominal imaging. So CT scans or, uh, MRIs that, uh, that let us evaluate you know, the bowel in between the small bowel. Um, there is laboratory testing that can sort of show us an inflammatory component and even some, some serologic testing that may indicate that. Uh, that the diagnosis is likely uh, inflammatory bowel disease, but it ends up being this, uh, you know, this combination of testing that that lets us identify not only the disease but the pattern of disease. I'd like to remind listeners that this is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Joseph Valentino, an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate. Once someone knows they have inflammatory bowel disease, what can be done? So at that point, hopefully we're uh, uh, referred to the right people. Establishing with a gastroenterologist actually is an important step. And one of the big reasons for that, again, is to, to make sure we understand exactly, you know, where the disease is, what extent, what sort of problems might you have related to your disease. And once we uh, know the, the location, the, the severity that can help us figure out what medications might help keep things uh, in check. And so, uh, getting on to the right medical therapy to try to control the inflammation uh, ends up uh, ends up being uh, very important.
since this uh, involves the gastrointestinal tract, is diet um, a concern as well? So, uh, diet in and of itself is not going to uh, you know treat or cure the disease. Um, uh, you know whether some uh, modifications to a diet might impact inflammation uh, could be uh, a reason for discussion. A lot of times, there are patients who will heavily modify. Their diet, and it may be because they already are developing these these points of narrowing or blockage, and that uh, that's um, ends up being a, a critical way that they're they're able to keep eating. Uh, that they'll have to watch things that would pass through in bulk that might, you know, block up their tract or something that tends to trigger you know diarrhea or something like that. So um, it is uh, it is pretty common. I think that these patients will. Um, change their diets, um, but that does not replace um, medical therapy or, uh, in certain circumstances, surgical therapy. At what point might surgery be um, something that someone would consider? So, there are a number of reasons that somebody might end up in an operating room, and a lot of the times it's when disease is either very refractory to our, our medical treatments, we can't keep uh, the disease in check very well, and, and it sort of breaks through what we're able to, to throw at it to try to keep those symptoms under control. So, uh, you know, failure of medical therapy is a common reason that patients will end up in an operating room. Sometimes there are also complications, you know, some of those things that I've alluded to a few times already where, you know, maybe the, the bowel starts to narrow and it blocks up. And, you know, if you have a mechanical obstruction, then things just can't pass downstream, and that may be a reason that someone needs an operation. If it's starting to cause infection where it's uh, creating an abscess, like a pocket of infection, or if it's freely perforated into the abdomen where somebody might be getting very sick from that, you know, that may drive us to, uh, to need to do surgery. If there's very severe uh, bleeding, that may be another indication in certain circumstances. Um, the, uh, the risk of cancer, so sometimes, uh, you know, this elevated chance that somebody might develop cancer that may uh, picking up precancers or cancerous changes may uh, make us decide that surgery might be uh, the right move as well. And then actually there can uh, be other things, even such as perianal disease, uh, and particularly Crohn's disease, where people can develop abscesses infections. And it's a little bit different than some of the abdominal surgery, but uh, but still can uh, can require surgical intervention in order to keep those things uh, in check. So, in the operations that you perform, are you removing some of the colon or some of some pieces of the intestine where the disease or the inflammation is particularly bad? So, um, yeah, the the operation that um, you know would uh, would apply to a given patient does depend on not both what disease they they have or that we think they have, as well as you know, where that disease is located. So, if we're talking about colon inflammation, if we think it's ulcerative colitis, then generally we're taking out the colon. And, uh, you know, the old gold standard is creating what's called an endoleostomy, where we bring up the end of the small bowel uh, through the belly wall and, and where somebody would have a bag on their side. Um, but uh, especially in, in more elective circumstances, um, uh, there is something called uh, iliopouch anal anastomosis. Uh, the most common configuration or shape of it is something called a J pouch. Um, and what we do there is uh, basically reshape the small bowel to create a reservoir, a new sort of storage area uh, for, uh, for stool. And then we're able to attach that down to the top of the uh, the anal canal, and that's a way where we um, are able to potentially reestablish uh, gastrointestinal continuity, sort of let things still go downstream. And there's a lot to that, and it's it's uh, very important to have the right discussions with the patient, both about what surgery entails, potential complications, and expectations afterwards. Uh, but uh, um, but definitely a, a good option for a large number of our patients. You know, for Crohn's disease, it often is a little bit uh, different. And, um, you know, let's say even rather than just the, the colon, it may involve the small bowel. And you ask, is it just taking things out? Well, a lot of the times we are doing a resection. We're removing the part that's just too diseased or too problematic, something that has scarred or, or developed some sort of a problem that we um, were not able to fix it medically. 
Um, and so we'll remove that section. Um, there are times though, when we're trying to preserve gut length, because you, you're born with a certain amount of, of gut to begin with, and we've got to try to get you through the rest of your life with what you've got. Um, and so rather than removing it, we may do something like a strictureplasty where instead we reshape the bowel. And I think it's actually one of the very interesting uh, parts of surgery for inflammatory bowel disease. It's trying to figure out when do you apply which technique. Um, it's almost uh, like a complex puzzle and just trying to figure out, um, you know, what is the, the best option that still leaves the, the most length when we're done. Does an operation cure ulcerative colitis? So for ulcerative colitis, um, I would not necessarily use the term cure, but it can certainly, um, uh, I guess, almost in a sense, I guess the GI portion of disease that that can be the case, or the case rather, um, in that we're removing that uh, that colonic inflammation. There's often a short cuff of of. Uh, it's called an anal transition zone that can sometimes still get some inflammation in it. Something uh, sometimes something that we need to keep an eye on. There uh, are extra intestinal manifestations that um, that sometimes we take into consideration. But um, it's definitely, I would say, one of the re rewarding things about um, you know uh, ulcerative colitis and moving towards a J pouch is sometimes these patients will have just a very rough quality of life and. Uh, and doing an operation like that can suddenly, you know, give them their life back. So it definitely can be very uh, beneficial for them. So life could improve. I was going to ask if there's restrictions afterward, or what? What is life like after you go through one of these operations? Um, so uh, hopefully better. You know, it. Uh, so the J pouch, for instance, you know, that's uh, a lot of it. Does come down to talking about. Um, I mentioned preoperative expectations. We're not necessarily restoring you to what things might have been like before you were ever diagnosed with the disease, but a lot of these people have been through a pretty rough quality of life related to their disease. And even if they still go a little bit more frequently uh, or maybe can't defer as long as they, they could have, you know, defer a bowel movement rather as long as they could have beforehand, it, it is uh, often much better than what they had experienced preoperatively. You know, uh, using that term, uh, you know, cure too for Crohn's disease, you know, just to kind of distinguish here, um, you know, it, it's not a, a cure and we don't have a, a cure for it. We have ways to sort of keep things in check and really surgery there. A lot of it is, is kind of damage control. It's trying to, um, to remove these segments that have just become so problematic. So afterwards, um, you know, what, what does life look like? Well, hopefully better. It's one of the, um, kind of unfortunate, but also incredible things about a number of patients with inflammatory bowel disease is their ability to adapt. They are often so used to uh, to having uh, this disease and things sometimes progress and sometimes it could be gradual uh, and sometimes even a little bit more rapid than that. But I think sometimes they almost forget what normal felt like. And sometimes you put them through an operation and you get rid of this segment and all of a sudden, they can eat things that they haven't been able to eat in a long time. They they have uh, less pain than they've had in a long time, and that part is extremely you know rewarding. Now we still want to get them on all the right medical therapy so that we can try to maintain that that control, maintain that quality of life for as long as we can. And maybe we end up in an operating room again. In fact, there's a good chance that we do. Um, but hopefully, we're doing it. Um, you know, as far out and under the best circumstances that we can. Well, Dr. Valentino, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Dr. Valentino is an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. How can you prevent HIV transmission? Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. 
Many people put preventive health care on hold during the COVID pandemic, and for providers working to reduce the transmission of the virus that causes AIDS, one of the challenges has been to continue providing HIV treatment and pre-exposure prophylaxis. Here to talk about what's known as PrEP is Nikki Ruskowski. She's an education specialist from Upstate's Department of Pediatric Infectious Diseases. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Nikki Ruskowski. Thank you for having me back. It's nice to be back. Well, I'd like to begin by asking you to tell us what PrEP is. Is this a, a daily pill? Right. Yeah. So PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis, and it's a daily medication. So somebody who's concerned about their risk for HIV can take this medication, this pill once a day. And while they're taking the medication, it's over 99% effective at preventing HIV. So it's a great solution for anyone who's worried about contracting HIV. Is it for men and women? It is. Anyone who is at risk for HIV uh, could consider taking PrEP. What's the typical age that you've seen of someone who's um, taking PrEP? We have folks of all ages across our two clinics. I think the youngest that we have had maybe a 14 or a 15 year old with very unique uh, circumstances. We can prescribe to uh, kids under the age of 18. They don't need parental consent. And then we've got um, folks on PrEP in their, I think we have someone in their 80s, you know, so it spans the whole, uh, you know, the whole, lots of different people, lots of different ages, uh, all sorts of different people with all sorts of different backgrounds, uh, different races, different sexual orientation. Uh, we have a whole range of different people who have decided to take PrEP to stay safe from HIV. Well, how effective is PrEP at preventing, you know, sexually transmitted HIV? And does it uh, also prevent HIV transmitted through injectable drug use? It does. It's very, very effective for both. And one of the things that decides how effective it is, is how often people remember to take their medication, um, much like many other medications. If you remember to take it as it's prescribed in this case, every single day, if folks take it every single day, then it is incredibly effective. And some studies have shown that it's over 99% effective at preventing HIV. If people forget to take it once in a while, then it's not quite as effective, but this is an incredibly effective way to prevent HIV, both through sex, but also through injection drug use. Does PrEP protect against any other sexually transmitted disease? It doesn't. And so what we work to do with our patients who are on PrEP is to work with them on a risk reduction strategy. You know, everyone is able to make their own choices about what they want to do, but we want to make sure that our patients are really well educated about the risks of other STIs because PrEP does only prevent HIV. And that's fantastic because HIV really is, it adds a lot of challenges to someone's life if they become HIV positive. It, it really is the STI to avoid. I mean, you would want to avoid them all, but uh, ideally we want to keep as many people HIV negative as possible. So it is very effective against HIV, but offers no protection against other sexually transmitted infections. So patients who are on PrEP, we're going to see them typically every three to six months, and we're going to do STI testing when they come in for those visits. And like I say, we're going to kind of work with them to give them really good education so they really know how to protect themselves and hopefully empower them to make choices that put their health and wellness at the forefront. Are there side effects to be aware of if you're taking PrEP? For the most part, no. Most of our patients don't experience any side effects. We know that in the first month, some people might uh, experience mild headaches or a little bit of GI distress, you know, kind of upset stomach. And sometimes we see, you know, we see that in the odd patient. But for the most part, people don't have those side effects that are often associated with HIV medications. Uh, people tend to do really well on, on there are two medications um, that are approved for use uh, for PrEP, Descovy and Trivada. And uh, typically uh, folks tend to do really well on them with little or no side effects. Do the PrEP medications, do they interact with any other medications that someone might be taking, be it 
hormone pills or birth control pills or, or any other kind of medication? No, I mean, there are some very obscure <laughs> medications that you might, uh, you know, want to watch for an interaction with, but for the most part, no, you know, the, the medications that you talk about, like birth control or hormones, uh, no, no interactions there. So people can take both. Uh, we do have many of our patients who are, um, birth control pill, for example, or who are taking hormones. One of the clinics at Upstate that we provide PrEP, Inclusive Health Services, we also do LGBTQ specialty primary care. And through that, are offering services like hormones to trans and gender diverse patients. So there is certainly is some crossover here. And, and we know that uh, transgender women uh, particularly do uh, experience a higher burden of HIV. So we do see higher rates of HIV in trans women, um, they're disproportionately affected. So that's often, you know, we it's ideal that we're able to offer folks really good quality primary care and, and provide PrEP along with that to make sure that their um, sexual health is taken care of, but also to make sure that their uh, uh, all-round health is, is in a good place and that they're able to access gender-affirming hormones as well. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Nikki Ruskowski. She's an education specialist from Upstate's Department of Pediatric Infectious Disease. And we've been talking about pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. So how does someone decide whether they should take PrEP? Um, how do they know that they're at risk for HIV? This is often the most difficult thing, I think, because it's such a gray area. You know, at what point does exactly does somebody say I'm at enough risk to consider PrEP? And we encourage folks to be very open-minded about uh, about going on to PrEP and that if there's any concern about risk for HIV, that PrEP's a really good option. You know, even if it's only for six months, a year, a time in somebody's life where they are concerned about their risk for HIV. And I think we also have some patients who are relatively low risk for HIV, but it's something that really worries them. We know obviously that from the beginning of the HIV epidemic that gay men were also a group that were disproportionately affected by HIV. And so there are many gay men who are very anxious about HIV. And it's a really nice way for those people to be able to have some peace of mind and, and not to have to worry about this in their relationships that they can take their PrEP every day and know that they are really well protected against HIV. If someone is vigilant, I mean, really vigilant about condom use, are they going to need PrEP? Well, it, not necessarily. I mean, it really depends. We have some people who are very vigilant about condom use, but they take PrEP as a backup. And those typically might be the folks who experience some real anxiety about HIV. You know, a condom can break or something can happen unexpectedly and they want that extra level of protection. So we really go by what the patient tells us. You know, if somebody comes in and says, yes, I use condoms every single time, but I want this extra layer of protection, then absolutely we'll prescribe. Um, and we encourage patients to use condoms every single time if that's what's right for them. But it, it really depends on the person that we have in front of us. And uh, although condoms are very effective against HIV, um, you know, there's still that small chance that something could go wrong, like a condom breaking. Uh, and often in those cases, it is the anxiety and the stress that people experience around around sex and around HIV, that PrEP just gives them that peace of mind. We have so many people who have started taking PrEP and started dating for the first time in years because this was something that really worried them. And it's so nice to be able to give people that peace of mind. Why do you test people for HIV before they start the prescription of, for PrEP? Yeah, so PrEP is of people who are HIV negative. It is a way to stay HIV negative. So we need to make sure that before we start, this person doesn't have HIV and isn't aware of it. So that's really important. And we actually continue to test for HIV, even when somebody is on PrEP, you know, maybe they missed a couple of pills and there is still that potential that they could get HIV. And, and typically that would be if they weren't maybe taking their medication uh, every day. But 
we need to make sure that somebody doesn't start with HIV. You know, if somebody has HIV, then we're going to put them on uh, a medication that is going to uh, suppress their viral load and going to treat the HIV. And the PrEP medication actually is an HIV medication, but alone it's not sufficient for somebody who is HIV positive. Somebody who's HIV positive typically is on a combination of three different medications. And our PrEP medications, uh, Descovy and Trivada, are actually just a combination of two. So it wouldn't be enough. We would need to uh, have that extra, uh, extra medication for somebody who is living with HIV. And that's really important because we don't want to uh, risk uh, the person becoming resistant to our HIV medication. So really important that we know somebody's HIV negative, we get them onto PrEP. And if they weren't, that we get them onto the right HIV meds. I want to let listeners know the phone number is 315-571-0013 if anyone is interested in PrEP. And let's differentiate. With pediatric infectious disease, you deal with people up to their early 20s but people who are older than that can still seek providers through inclusive health services, and people can call that same phone number, right, to reach either service? Yes. So that number is uh, for anybody who's interested in PrEP. That actually comes right through to me, and that could be somebody of any age who is interested or even just has questions about PrEP. You can call or text that number, and I'll take any questions or anything that um, – clarify anything uh, if somebody is kind of on the fence about about prep and then we can get them set up with an appointment with us uh, in pediatrics or uh, at the adult clinic as well what if someone is concerned about being able to afford prep yeah that's a good question we have a lot of options to be able to make sure that folks can access prep it's not perfect but we can do a lot to help people who might have barriers financial bar barriers so uh, Gilead is the company that makes the medication and they will uh, provide the medication for no cost to people who are uh, uninsured or underinsured. Uh, and then through the state, we're able to uh, do uh, provide assistance with costs of the, of the visit, you know, the labs and the, the medical visit. So for many people who, if someone has uh, insurance that doesn't cover PrEP, or, you know, if there is a financial barrier, we can typically help. We also pay for co-pays for folks. So in most cases, we can help people financially. Unfortunately, there's always some who we, they don't, they're not able to apply for some of those programs. They don't meet the criteria. But for many people, we can offer assistance to make sure that they can go into PrEP because we really want anyone who has any risk for HIV to be able to access this. Everybody deserves to, uh, to, to stay HIV negative and to have access to these fantastic medications that can really be life-changing. Well, I appreciate you making time to talk with us about PrEP. I've been talking with Nikki Ruskowski, an education specialist in Upstate's Department of Pediatric Infectious Diseases. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, some adults with epilepsy are candidates for surgery or neurostimulators. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Sometimes medications for people with epilepsy are not completely effective in controlling seizures. Today, I'm speaking about surgical options and the use of neurostimulators with Dr. Sharam Azadyar. He's an epileptologist, which means a neurologist who specializes in epilepsy. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Azadyar. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Now, just to be clear, um, the therapies that we're going to be talking about today, these are for people with uncontrolled epilepsy, and that's a rather small percentage of people with epilepsy. Is that right? Um, it, it is a percentage of patients um, that probably is um, not as small as sometimes we think. Um, so there are, on average, about... 30% of patients with epilepsy that eventually medications may not completely control their seizures. And this group 
are referred to, um, their epilepsy is referred to as medically refractory epilepsy. All right. Well, what can surgery offer someone with medically refractory epilepsy? Um, so the concept of epilepsy surgery is um, if we can, in a certain percentage of this group of refractory uh, epilepsy uh, patients, if we can identify or we can uh, find the area of the brain that is generating the seizures, and if we can determine if that area of the brain is in an area of the brain that does not have a high critical function um, and is amenable to being resected, so removing that area of the brain, that small area of the brain, can lead to better seizure control or at times uh, seizure freedom. Um, so, so this process in itself requires a, a good amount of workup uh, with various methods, uh, which I can um, explain very briefly about those. Let me jump in and ask you though, how do you go about zeroing in? Because you have to get really precise on where in the brain the seizures are originating, right? That's absolutely correct. Um, so we need to be very precise and we need to pinpoint the area of the brain that is potentially causing the seizures. And in order to do that, um, there are again several uh, tests and, and monitorings that we need to do. Um, and one way to, um, to, to make this determination a bit more precise sometimes is uh, recording the brain waves directly from the surface of the brain or even uh, from inside the brain. And in order to do that, sometimes we need to uh, put some recording electrodes inside the brain or on the surface of the brain with, uh, with, with a surgical procedure and then record the brain waves and record the seizures in order to be um, precise in finding the location of the um, brain that is generating the seizures. And just to be clear, you're an epileptologist. You're not a neurosurgeon, but you work closely with a partner in neurosurgery for these types of operations, right? That's exactly correct. So approach to epilepsy surgery is a team approach. Uh, it consists of a collaboration between a neurosurgeon and epileptologist neuroradiologist, basically radiologist who specializes or subspecializes in neurology, neuropsychologists, um, and uh, so basically it's a team approach. That's correct. Can surgery be a permanent solution for someone where after the operation they don't need epilepsy medicine and they don't have seizures anymore? It doesn't, does it cure them? In certain patients, um, seizure freedom can be achieved with, uh, with epilepsy surgery. Uh, depends on uh, the area of the brain that is causing the seizures. And again, the success of that workup that uh, we talked about briefly. Um, and, and one very uh, prominent determining factor of who will be the best responder to epilepsy surgery is if someone has a, a, an identified lesion um, in the imaging of the brain, for example, in MRI of the brain, if we can find a lesion that we suspect that might be the location of seizure generation, and then the subsequent workup line up with that imaging finding, uh, that significantly increases the success rate of surgery. That's good to know. Now, um, are there risks to be aware of or side effects from surgery that someone, you know, needs to know about before they sign up for this? Um, like any other invasive procedure, um, there are some risks associated and, and we um, very carefully um, tailor the workup um, based on the findings of the patient. And this will be um, kind of reviewed um, with them at the time. 
but there are in general, like any other surgery, risk of um, uh, risk of bleeding, for example, in areas of the brain, uh, which is a small risk, uh, but but it's considered one of the risks or risk of infection because um, the skull um, is either opened or there are holes made in the skull, so that increases a bit of risk of infection. But all these complications in hands of a good uh, team are um, are minimized. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Sharam Izadyar. He's an associate professor of neurology at Upstate, and he specializes in the treatment of epilepsy. So I want to talk to you about neurostimulators. What, what are those? Neurostimulators are devices that provide a constant electrical pulses that can be delivered to parts, either parts of the brain or um, nerves that eventually uh, go to the brain. So the concept of neurostimulation is that these repeated electrical or cyclic electrical stimulations over a period of time um, in certain patients can provide a better control of seizures and then lead to um, less seizure frequency. How big is a neurostimulator and, and what does it look like? There are there are currently um, the main neurostimulators, uh, there are three types. Um, one is a vagal nerve stimulator and this um, for as, as a general um, introduction to neurostimulation, let me say that Neurostimulators usually consist of a battery, which uh, which generates these electrical um, discharges or cyclic electrical discharges, and then this is delivered through a wire, and that wire, in um, in case of vagal nerve stimulator, is wrapped around one of the nerves um, that is in the neck area, and it's called vagus nerve and that nerve eventually goes to the brain. Um, so the, that, that device delivers that electrical stimulation to the vagus nerve. Uh, whereas there are two other devices called uh, RNS or responsive neurostimulator or deep brain stimulator, DBS. Um, they are, the, the wires are inserted inside the brain and they deliver the electrical pulses or the electrical discharges that is generated by the battery to the, to the brain directly. So these are implanted in the patient either un under the skin or in the brain. Um, how long have they been on the market and in use? Um, vagal nerve stimulator or VNS has been around uh, since 1990s. So it has been a while. Um, the other two, um, RNS and DBS, are relatively newer. So they have been um, all of these. I mean, devices are FDA approved for use in epilepsy. DBS has been around for a longer period of time, but the use of that for epilepsy is a bit newer. Maybe in the past uh, couple of years, that has been approved by FDA. It had some use in other neurological disorders, such as Parkinson's disease. Uh, for for years, but but the usage of that in epilepsy is a bit newer, and and RNS also um, is a bit newer device that uh, approved by by FDA. Well, as a neurologist specializing in epilepsy, how do you determine which would be best for each patient, whether they need surgery or whether one of these neurostimulators is best? So these all, um, there are several factors that are taken into account. That includes the age of the patient, um, includes also the type of epilepsy they have, uh, depends on the frequency of the seizures, depends on also other um, coexisting medical conditions, for example, uh, including um, mental health um, issues that is present, or or some other um, medical conditions. So all of these uh, determine which would be the best approach for the patient. 
in terms of epilepsy surgery versus neurostimulation? And if neurostimulation, which one is the best um, device for the particular patient? Is there anything that would just straight out disqualify someone from an, having a neurostimulator? Um, there, there is nothing particularly that excludes anyone um, from from considering these. Again, there are um, every every patient before any of these options are considered go undergo a comprehensive evaluation. Um, and uh, but but there is no particular. Um, um, contraindication. Um, there are certain types of epilepsies that are considered contraindication as it goes um, in in terms of neurostimulation or surgery, and those are uh, epilepsies that do not have a specific focus. Um, they're called uh, primary generalized or genetic generalized epilepsies, and those basically are seizures that. Um, Again, start from both hemispheres of the brain at the same time, as opposed to focal epilepsies, which start from one area of the brain. But there are also um, so some there's some data also that um, the neurostimulators may be effective in primary generalized epilepsies as well. Uh, but there's still uh, research is ongoing in that area. Well, can you tell me what's involved? I mean, how big of a surgery is it to have one of these implanted? Um, in case of VNS, it's a fairly um, uh, simple kind of surgery. So the, the battery is in the size of a pacemaker uh, that is implanted uh, under the skin and the chest area and the wire then under the skin goes up to the neck and it's wrapped around the nerve, the vagus nerve that I mentioned in the neck. In case of the other two, RNS and DBS, uh, they're a bit more invasive, but also they are, um, those wires can be inserted in the brain through small holes that are made in the skull. So they're not considered major surgery, um, but compared to the VNS, they're a bit larger surgeries. Well, before we wrap up, let me ask you, do, do you have patients that you've seen whose lives have been improved after they've had the epilepsy surgery or after they've been implanted with a neurostimulator? Absolutely. There are, I, I have um, uh, several patients and my colleagues also um, that have achieved um, either seizure freedom uh, with either of these methods or significant reduction in seizure frequency. However, I have to mention like any other treatment, such as medications, there are again a certain percent of patients that may go through all these workup and do epoxy surgery or neurostimulation and eventually may not see benefit. Again, those risks versus benefits will be individualized in every patient and we will discuss with them in detail before proceeding, uh, but definitely there have been patients that successfully had either, again, seizure freedom or significant seizure um, reduction, um, and they, that has significantly affected their life and quality of life. Well, I'm really grateful to you for taking time to explain these epilepsy treatments for us. Thank you to Dr. Sharam Azadyar. He's an associate professor of neurology at Upstate who specializes in epilepsy. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Dr. Peter Cronkright is an associate professor of internal and family medicine here at Upstate Medical University. He gave us a poem that reminds us we have come through medically and socially challenging times before. His poem, Making Rounds, gives physicians in particular a reason to hope. Making Rounds. Virus taking hold, calling the shots, Truth be told, don't sleep a lot, scary. Distance and hygiene, not enough. Where to lean, times are tough. Memory, 
having learned at rapid pace, classroom turned face to face, flurry. Am I ready for the call? Remain steady, exposed to all, reality. Long white coat serves as shield, carrying notes, virus revealed, deadly. Gather round foot of the bed, stand your ground while it spreads, worry, point fingers, so much unknown, panic lingers, our limits shown, sorry. Intern year, 83, lots to fear, HIV, history. James McCaig is a physician and writer from Pittsburgh. His poem, Contagion, is similarly eerie in that we do not know what disease we are facing. Contagion. The mask becomes you, so he said, and could not see her smile. It's probably your eyes, he said. Lips often are disguise. It was a yellow hospital mask with a center stain of red, betraying lipstick she earlier had nonetheless put on. By now she felt a warming blush extending up her face, and she wondered if it would peek over the mask's edge like an early dawn over a horizon. And so she stood there, like Juliet on the balcony, six feet or so away. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.